0: I think that the culture of social media tends to dictate how these platforms evolve. Facebook seems to think that users are losing interest in these types of vanity metrics, right? But I think for a lot of people, that might not be the case.
1: Hey gang, it's Tuesday, October 1st somehow. Today, in history. On this day, what happens, Blake. In 1891, Stanford University opened its doors. In 1903, Boston Americans played the Pittsburgh Pirates in the first Modern World Series. In 1908, Henry Ford introduced the groundbreaking Model T car for just over 800 bucks Affordable. Bargain. In 1962, Johnny Carson became the host of The Tonight Show. He would then host for 30 years straight. It doesn't mean much to me because I'm English, but that's a big deal. The Tonight Show? Well, I know of The Tonight Show, but him hosting specifically for that is... It's, it's not a, a big deal because
0: you're English. It's not a big deal to me because I'm 27 and I have okay. no recollection of <laughs> okay. Johnny Carson. So I'm not the only one. Okay, a lot of people are listening.
1: <laughs> there was another stat which I read and I was like, I don't, is this a big thing? I think Oh, I think it was Elvis Presley was on some show which kind of launched his career. Ed Sullivan? That's a big deal. I think that's, yeah. I think okay. That's a big one. All right. So I am in the wrong. <laughs> okay, just checking. In 1971, Disney World opened in Orlando, Florida. And in 1971, that same year, the first brain or CT or CAT scan was performed in London. In 1975, on this day, the thriller in Manila took place. Muhammad Ali beat Joe Frazier in 14 rounds in the Philippines to retain his WBC, WBA heavyweight title. That's a long time to fight the same person. Yeah. <laughs> 14, that's like 40 minutes just fighting one dude. That's a lot. After a round I'd be like, let's call it a draw because it's been long <laughs> enough, neither of us have won. Um, in 1982, Sony launched the first consumer CD player. Seems like yesterday. It's also International Coffee Day, so happy that. I had my cup. The, <laughs> I had a lot of cups. <laughs> the average American spends over $1,000 on coffee each year. At first I thought, oh, it sounds high. And then immediately afterwards I felt like that's nowhere near enough money being spent on coffee what would you say about what's that like 83 bucks a month 21 ish bucks a week in manhattan you spend five dollars on one that's cup of true coffee. So this definitely varies yeah yeah that's at least a weekly calculation for new york <laughs> welcome to the podcast guys that covers everything digital media advertising and technology It's behind the numbers. I'm your host, Marcus Johnson, and I'm joined in studio by junior analyst covering everything social media, Blake Drosch. Thanks, Marcus. Pleasure to be here. Hello. Thanks for coming in. Today's topic, Facebook removes apps, hides likes, and adds some ads. Okay, Blake, let's start with the removal of some apps. Facebook recently said that it had suspended around 70,000 apps associated with about 400 developers and they'd flagged about 10,000 of these for potentially misappropriating personal information from its users. This move was part of an ongoing investigation into improper data use by third-party developers. The investigation was sparked by last year's Cambridge Analytica data privacy scandal whereby a political consulting firm bought the data of millions of Facebook users that had been harvested by a mobile quiz app. One such example of a banned app Um, was one called My Personality that was caught sharing information with researchers and companies with only limited privacy protections. They also refused to cooperate with an audit, according to Facebook. This Facebook app developer investigation, as it's being called, has involved hundreds of folks from attorneys to external investigators to data scientists to policy specialists. Uh, Blake, what do you make of uh, this mass removal of apps by Facebook?
0: You know, I think that Close to 70,000, that's a pretty scary number when you think about it. Um, And the potential for violation of privacy is definitely there, but you also have to look at it in the context of the fact that there are millions and millions of third-party apps on Facebook. And you actually broke down the numbers a little bit, so if you take a look at it, you have 69,000 were removed. Mm -hmm. Of those 69,000, according to Facebook, most of them were banned simply because the developers didn't respond to a request for information. Yes. Uh, so it's uh, you know also a little bit of a, of a cleanup of apps that had never made it to market and were in beta. Um, but there were also 10,000 that were flagged for potentially misappropriating personal data. Mm-hmm. That's a lot, and it's from 400 developers, which is another important fact, right? Because you have uh, you know, developers that are testing and creating multiple apps. So when you look at that number, it's scary because obviously it only takes a few bad players to get access to data and, you know, breach privacy. But in terms of actual violations of privacy, there's really no way to know how big of a deal it is until we look at these individual cases like the ones that you mentioned um, to really determine what the effect and the actual practical damage has been.
1: Yeah, just to reiterate what you said, so a Facebook executive said the suspensions were, quote, not necessarily an indication that these apps are posing a threat to people, close quote. Um, They said this investigation is by no means finished so a few points to make here one this does seem to again raise concerns about security uh, and privacy people's information on the platform something that probably didn't go away but it's back in the news again so you do have to stop and think hang on a second how many apps did you have to remove because you were concerned about them how many more might come out and to what you're saying about that specific number like what does that mean is that three percent of all the apps that they might have Put on is that 70% of the apps that they were investigating actually needed to be uh, put on hold. The second point here is one of legal responsibility. So Jules Polonetsky chief executive of non-profit, the Future of Privacy Forum, had questioned whether these apps will escape legal penalty. So what's going to happen? Because if the developers are left thinking there's no legal risk, then what's going to happen to all of these apps? They get, some of them, again, haven't maybe committed any any crimes or haven't, haven't done anything wrong, but some might have. And what's going to be the ramifications for them? This individual, uh, Mr. Polensky, was calling on the FTC to act against developers who had broke Facebook's terms of service. And then finally, how Facebook reacts as well because they said they're taking legal action where necessary. I imagine they'll have to be quite specific because you can't Mm -hmm. investigate all of these guys. Um, But there's two such examples. In May, Facebook filed a suit in California against South Korean data analytics company RankWave. Who failed to cooperate with their investigation. And a month ago they filed one against Lion Moby and Jedi Moby that had used their apps to infect users' phones with malware in a profit generating scheme. So those are obviously examples of it only takes,
0: you know, one bad player yep. to potentially cause a lot of damage. I <laughs> mean, malware being installed on someone's phone without them having knowledge of it, and you know, that information being used to, you know, market to them or or utilize their data in ways that they're unaware of. I mean that's that's a that's a serious deal. Facebook is obviously committed to it and they've made a big public stance that this is an ongoing in- investigation and it's something that they're going to look into. But, uh, you know, I think you make a great point is that Facebook created this monster and now it's sort of their responsibility to tame the beast. Um, legally, you know, we're not legal experts, have no idea what the, you know, I ramifications, am. but I think, uh, you know, in the public eye, it's very important for a company like Facebook and if and if they're associated with these types of bad players in the app world, these developers, then you know, they're going to be the ones who are sort of, you know, taking the brunt of the criticism.
1: Yeah. It reminds me of YouTube and the way that they said, look, we're getting rid of all of these bad videos and our algorithm is doing most of it. And we're able to get rid of, I'm, I'm making this number up, but say the vast majority, like 75, 80%, even if it's 97% of videos, bef- and it was a really high number, a high share of their videos, they were able to uh, remove because they broke some of the rules, whether they were because they were controversial or had um, some rather alarming content contained in them, they were able to remove those so quickly without anyone even seeing them. But it takes one video. It takes right. one bad video and that video to go, not even to go viral, but to, to, for a number of folks to see it, for there to be a problem. Let's move on to Facebook. Uh, hiding the like count. So Facebook is about to commence a new test in Australia where people's likes... The video view counts and other post measurements will be private to other users. So if you were the one who created the posts, you can still see the count. What's your initial reaction to this story?
0: Yeah. So this conversation has been ongoing for a while. A couple of months ago, Instagram, obviously it's still Facebook. We're, you know, exploring that in certain regions by, you know, testing the hiding of likes. Um, But, you know, I think that the culture of social media tends to dictate how these platforms evolve. Right. And Facebook seems to think that users are losing interest in these types of vanity metrics. Right. But, I think for a lot of people that might not be the case, you know, like social media is a place to show off It's a place where people go to get an ego boost. Um, and it's a little bit of a double edged sword. Right. I mean, people will argue that that creates a toxic environment on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter. Uh, But at the same time, you know, some of these uh, vanity metrics as they're referred to are kind of how people, it's kind of what they look for. It's kind of the currency of their social media lifestyles. And you know, there's an entire industry made up on it. It's called influencer marketing. Right,
1: so So you're saying that this behavior has been created and and there's an expectation now of what people are gonna do on the platform. So regardless of these changes, people are still gonna behave a certain way.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, I don't think that hiding likes is going to make people stop using social media, right? Uh, but I do think it kind of just diminishes that ego boosting appeal, for better or for worse, that a lot of people post content online for. Yeah, you know, you it's it's social media is a game to a lot of people. You want to see what you can throw out there and measure that reaction. And yes.
1: You're still going to be able to view the metrics personally, um, but but what does that mean? Because isn't that meaningless without context? If I get 100 likes on my picture, but I don't know how many likes other people have got, then what is that? does that right. does that matter? I yeah. well, mean, you can screenshot
0: o- it and post it out and say, "Look, how many likes I got." Yeah, uh, how many you, do can't you guys see this, get? But I can, yeah,
1: <laughs> right. Uh, but yeah, I'm not
0: sure. Like I said, the culture of social media kind of dictates how these platforms evolve, and it's really going to be: Are there more people out there who? want to have that status of look how many followers that I have look how many likes I have you know maybe there are a lot of people who won't admit to wanting that at the same time it's also a quick way to react to a piece of content from the other point right. of view, right? If you're not going to comment on every single post that you would like just because the likes are gone now. Um, so I think it, it, it could potentially really hmm. shake up the dynamic of how we interact on social media. Yeah. But, you know, if it's if it's what the majority of people want, I'm, I'm not totally
1: convinced about that. So you talked about influencers in Canada where they've been trialing, at least with regards to Instagram. Instagram's Mm -hmm. been trialling the the removal of like counts, the influencers in Canada had complained about the like count removal. Some people have said, oh, it's actually quite good. I I enjoy the like count going away because there is less anxiety about when I post something. Uh, One such individual was uh, Nicola Labura said that he used to avoid posting photos of himself. I said, quote, now I don't focus on the number, but the people. I look and see who liked my post and not how many. Before it felt like a huge competition. And now it's relaxing and freeing, close quote. However, to what you said about the comments and what people are going to start doing now, the question of the moment seems to be, will consumers continue to comment and like posts, even if they could not see the number of their peers who are also doing so? Right. And that's the question that Facebook apparently is planning to study in Australia. So what's going to be the consumer reaction? When I can't see the number of likes, will I bother liking? That said, you you could still, if I liked your picture, you could still see that I liked it. And TechCrunch writer Josh Constein pointed out that technically viewers could go into the list of people who liked a post and count them.
0: Right. Yeah, technically. And I think that there are a couple of things that motivate people to like things on, mm. on social media, right? One is so you can sort of Put your two cents. I mean, you think about Reddit, right? You upvote something on Reddit. You People aren't interested in really looking at who upvoted what, who downvoted what, but it drives the elevation of that post, right? If I see something, a publication that I enjoy or you know, somebody uh, who's a public figure that I enjoy and I like their content, I'll like it just in the hopes that it will boost that elevation and like more people will see it. I don't care that Mm. anybody sees that I liked it because most of the time, nobody's that interested in my activity that they're gonna be going through my social media and looking at what I liked. I think that most people aren't that interested in what other people are doing. But it's it's about the democracy of it, right? It's like, it's the same argument of, okay, why should I vote in a democracy because my vote's just one vote. It's like, okay, well, if no one did it, we have no idea who we want the leader to be. If we, you know, on social media, just nobody likes anything because, oh, it's just my one like, what does it matter? Then, you know, the whole idea of boosting popular
1: content isn't going to work. So it's like a mini endorsement. In a way. Yeah. Yeah. You could look at it that way. Okay. That's really interesting. Let's move on to Facebook's new ad announcement. So Facebook just announced a few ad related changes right before ad week. uh, Number one, poll ads are moving to the main feed. Number two, augmented reality ads from Facebook. They've been testing them. They're moving into open beta this fall. And number three, Facebook is making playable ads available to all advertisers, not just gaming companies. What do you make of these announcements? Start at the top, I guess. Yeah. Polls. Uh, I like
0: polls. I think that they're a pretty seamless way to get users engaged in the content. It only takes a tap of a finger, right? Even if you're not interested in like voicing your opinion, a lot of the ways that most of the conventional polls, I believe on Facebook, but for Instagram and Twitter, the way that it incentivizes you to participate in the poll is if you're interested in seeing the results of the poll, right? correct? And in order to do that, you're participating. It's one tap of the finger. You see it, you engage with the ad. Maybe you're paying attention to it for two more- seconds longer or a second longer than you would if, you know, what didn't have that little bit of interactivity to yeah. it. Um, Become so, a bit yeah. more invested in it. Yeah, exactly. And it just, you know, it opens up another creative option. Like I saw actually on Twitter this afternoon, uh, a Dunkin' Donuts ad poll. It was something like, what are you looking forward to this fall? And all the answers were just some different variation of pumpkin. So it obviously didn't have any practical use, mm. but it sort of, grabs the attention and yeah Yeah. why not just another way to try to engage people for that much longer yeah
1: the other ones augmented
0: reality and playable okay so playable ads used to only be available for games right now Mm -hmm. anybody can do it so the example that Facebook had put out was that Vans had some sort of like a skateboarding game right so yeah I mean it's it's kind of gimmicky but if you have a creative idea that fits within that space yeah I mean sure it's another
1: good option Mm -hmm. but nothing to write home about at least in my opinion Okay. And finally, augmented reality ads uh, they've been testing them. now moving to open beta. Uh, like
0: playable ads, it's obviously not a super innovative concept. Um, and I think Facebook, you know, acknowledged that, um, in the release, but it really all depends on how you approach using it, right? If you're a clothing company or, you know, you want to show a customer how an appliance might fit inside like a room in, in their home, uh, it might have some practical use, but, uh, augmented reality in this form hasn't been perfected yet. It can kind of look a little bit wonky, uh, so, you know, I think that it could have some, some practical use. But again, you know, nothing nothing super revolutionary. Nothing
1: groundbreaking. Yeah. yeah. That's what we've got time for for Facebook and all the things they've been up to. It's time to find out what else has been going on in the digital world. But first, a quick word about eMarketer's Meet the Analyst webinar this week. Don't forget to join eMarketer Principal Analyst Lauren Fisher for a Meet the Analyst webinar on digital marketing in today's privacy-conscious world. Are you prepared for 2020? That's going to be this Thursday, October 3rd, where Lauren will discuss how privacy regulation, consumer attitudes, and larger industry changes are affecting digital marketers and the broader digital landscape into 2020. You can register for this or any eMarketer webinar at emarketer.com webinars. Today, in other news, Twitter's rather controversial Hydra replies feature just launched. How many folks have bought something from an Instagram ad? And Snapchat raises the duration limit on its video ads. Okay, story one. Twitter's rather controversial hide-replies feature just launched in America and Japan after earlier testing in Canada. The new feature, aimed at making Twitter conversations more civil, gives users the ability to hide those replies they deem contemptible, irrelevant or offensive comments, for example. These replies aren't deleted, they're simply hidden from view. The rather obvious concern here is that the feature could be used to silence differing opinions, even thoughtful, factually accurate ones. Twitter cites a survey in which a quarter of those who had their tweets hidden said they would reconsider how they interact with others in the future this feature gets added to the mute, block, and report buttons section. Blake, uh, how much concern is there over this feature?
0: Well, I love Twitter, first of all, as a consumer of social media. It's my favorite platform, but it's no doubt a toxic environment. There's really no way around that. If you're engaging in politics, even more so, but there can be you know, heated debates about anything right I mean I, I saw you know a debate explode this week about the Oxford comma on Twitter and it, oh. it, it got intense <laughs> um, so that was me yeah <laughs> so I think that you know the more options for controlling the way that you want to experience Twitter the better but there are ways that I think this could lend itself to what is already, a problematic component of Twitter, which is this whole di- idea of silencing voices. You know, you hear a lot about shadow banning, um, you hear a lot about, you know, all of these different types of ways that the algorithm is favoring one thing over another and to put a little bit of the viewability in the user's hands overall probably very well intentioned but there is a potential for for blowback um, in terms of this idea of transparency
1: yeah so we were trying to figure out whether say for example i hide one of your comments can you see that i've hidden it because you're saying on Facebook, if I hide one of your comments, right. you, you don't know about it. You think that it's still there.
0: Right, which I think is a that's a, a good way of doing it, right? Because if your friend posts something and you comment underneath it and your friend doesn't like your comment, like they can hide it and why if you go you? back to see <laughs> yeah. if it's still there you'll still see it even though it's not shown to anyone
1: else right. which sounds weird but in a way it's kind of a good it's a little bit safer because otherwise a bit bit safer. the reaction is going to be why did you hide my comment why did you move it behind the curtain right and that could cause open up a hole there. can of work yeah so. um we're still not sure about the details of it whether the person can or can't see um the comment that's been hidden from view It does put the person in control and that could be a good thing or a bad thing. It is also strange because it means that if you're the person who started the conversation, you by proxy just have control of the whole conversation.
0: Yeah, whether no that way. spirals
1: into a conversation that more people are engaged in or other people engage in, you have the power to do whatever you want within that conversation. I wonder if that should be the case Just because you started the conversation should you be able to influence it as heavily?
0: Right and I think we'll have to see you know what it's actually unrolled and do a little testing. But the other thing is like I don't, I don't understand that if you aren't involved in the conversation at all, can you go and click on and see like what's been hidden out of this conversation? Ah, so do you have to be a part of it? Do you have to be a part of it? I, I'm, yeah, I'm not sure, because that's, you know, another, it's another thing that potentially, like you said, the poster is essentially controlling the entire experience. Like, yeah. I, I understand it from a user, like a personal user point of view. Like, if you comment something on, you know, a really popular thread, and you don't want to be notified because two other people below you in the thread are arguing for three hours, mm-hmm. that makes sense to me. Um, but if you are putting up the tweet and then constructing the entire narrative beneath it and everybody who comes can't see what what else is on there then that could you know potentially cause some issues yeah
1: i'm questioning how people will behave how would i react to this if if i try to post something on your feed and reply to a comment that you would made and you hit it would i then think to myself oh yeah okay next time i need to say something nice is it going to be the similar to okay marcus go sit on the step Because the next time you realize, oh, if you mess up again, you're going to have to go sit back on the step. So this, therefore, I'll change my behavior. Um, Apparently, according to this research from Twitter, a quarter of people said, yes, you know, I, I actually realized that if I just say hateful things, then my comment's going to be removed or hidden from view. And they corrected their behavior or changed it. The other thing I wondered, maybe this wouldn't work, but there was something, I can't remember who said this, but we're reading it a number of months ago now. A person suggesting that, well, what if you could only comment or reply to posts of people who you had followed for a certain amount of time? And so you couldn't just quick fire, like shoot from the hip on everything that you saw. You had to have been following this person for a couple of months to be able to weigh in on, on the discussion. And I wonder how how much that would work, or even the idea of you have to uh, friend this person and have been their friend for a certain amount of time, yeah. would that protect the conversation from just random trolls? Yeah, maybe, but that seems a little bit limiting to me
0: of, of the the power of Twitter as okay. a platform, right? Because it's it's not necessarily supposed to be the place where you're just interacting with your friend group, right? Twitter is supposed to be the place where anybody can jump into a topic at any given time mm-hmm. so, you know, let's say that I see a popular tweet comes up on my feed because other people that I follow have been replying to it and I want to get into the conversation well, just because the first person that's, you know, posted the original tweet I've never heard of, that means that I, I can't get in there. Yeah. I it, think it, it, it in terms of uh, limiting the discourse, you know, you have to be careful because, yeah, I think Twitter wants to sort of curb some of the, you know, toxicity on the platform. Mm-hmm. But, you know, a lot of that toxicity comes with the territory of having, you know, an open discourse, which right. I think is a lot of people like about Twitter. Right.
1: Story two. Roughly six in 10 Instagram users have followed a new brand on the platform after seeing an interesting ad. In either the feed or stories, this is according to research company M4, commissioned by video tech startup Vidmob. Over one third, one in three folks, had bought something from an Instagram ad. Gen Zers were most likely to have. Of course they were. Men were found to be 10% more likely to buy through Instagram than women. Uh, would you make any of these stats, But Um, Instagram's a visual medium.
0: The ads are highly targeted, they're highly specific, um, and users in the U.S. at least are consistently spending more and more time on the platform, right? Mm-hmm. It seems like all of those things together make it a place that's very ripe for advertising and for discovery. And now we're seeing more and more so for actual purchases.
1: So for discovery, it seems to be a good platform. Research, for researching a product, they may still have some work to do. So one of the numbers from the study, four in 10 people who see a product they like on Instagram, do additional research within the app, six in 10, so uh, quite a bit more, research products elsewhere. People basically saying, I need more information before I convert. which is hard to do in a small platform, particularly on mobile. Some other VidMob findings found that the percentage of US Internet users who had made a purchase through social media grew to 34% this year from 29% the year before. Story three. Snapchat is raising the duration limit on video ads from 10 seconds to three whole minutes, also known as a lifetime. It will still let users skip the ads, Snapchat also changed the six second unskippable ads so users can now swipe to access a mobile site, long form video or a camera attachment. Previously, such interactivity was only available in video ads uh, elsewhere in the app. Blake, what do you make of this um, rather extreme extension of, of time that the advertisers are going to be allowed to advertise now going from 10 seconds to three minutes? Yeah, it's interesting to say the least. It's eighteen
0: um, times as long. So, how long is a how long is the longest ad you've ever seen on television, YouTube? Was it ever three minutes long? No, maybe two and a half, and it had to be a movie trailer. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So. It'll be interesting to, to see, you know, how, if, if anybody is utilizing this three minute ad, what you're actually putting in there. You know, you gotta think about the comparison of, of a YouTube ad. People watch 30 minutes to an hour. Sometimes at the at the longer ends, they have 30 second ads. Typically, minute ads on YouTube videos. Usually, you can skip them after five to 10 seconds. Uh, I've never you know not skip the ad once once given the opportunity. Uh, and then when you shrink it down to the platform of Snapchat, which is you know, much, much shorter form, at least in in, its its tradition. Mm -hmm. uh, You know, the idea that someone would engage for three minutes on an ad. um, Particularly
1: younger users whose attention span, with all due respect, younger people, and great. No,
0: it's not, and, and you know, I think that, look, it makes sense that this is coming out in, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, the same week that they announced a, a new slew of uh, original programming, yep. Snap Originals, mm-hmm. um, so I think the idea is Snapchat obviously wants to evolve past the, you know, little, you know, snippets to some degree of longer form content, and this is potentially a way to bring advertisers into it. Um, but you know they're obviously going to have to bring users into it. They're going to mm-hmm. have to increase the engagement on the platform, which our numbers are showing right now are going to flatline for the next couple yeah. of years. New ad units are great, right? But the first thing you have to do is you know get the users engaging with the content that yeah. you're going to sell the ads against. Then you can talk about the advertising. Right. So
1: it seems like a bit. Of- a leap. what percentage of people who are sat potentially sat through a three-minute ad are going to hit skip can you get 90 can you get 0.001 percent of people to not hit the skip button on a three-minute ad maybe then it's worth it i don't think so i'd probably have to get that percentage up a lot higher for right. it to be worth it but i can't think of a context where i would sit through one uh, again unless you were sitting getting ready to watch long-form content at the movies in front of netflix maybe a youtube video but Snap content, it seems like a lot. It's going to be interesting to see who jumps on this.
0: Yeah, and you know, look, we'll see how it's positioned. If all of a sudden a Snap original blows up and becomes you know, hugely popular piece of content, the only way that you can access it is by sitting through a three-minute pre-roll ad? Maybe.
1: I yep. don't know. Lots of potential investment bank RBC, suggesting that three-quarters of advertising professionals that they surveyed still hadn't advertised on Snapchat. See if this changes things So we've got time for Thank you so much Blake Thanks Marcus Thanks to everyone who took a little time to listen in To say hello to myself You can email us at Or anyone at eMarketer You can email us at Podcast at eMarketer.com And the conversation begins See everyone tomorrow for a brand new show On Behind the Numbers It's the ad platform With Nicole Perrin Talking about everything advertising Yeah Yeah (laughs) Yeah Always happens. It always in New York. There's always like a light switch moment where it just goes, "Okay, now you need a jacket," and that's gonna happen Thursday.
0: Right. Exactly. It just goes
1: from what was it like ninety, a high of ninety, to high sixties, yeah, low seventies. Like in a day, that's depressing. I take the ferry to work. Okay, I accidentally cool. bought like. <laughs> A million ferry tickets through the app. So I'm trying to like cycle to work as much as possible. So I'm hoping the weather stays good for at least another couple of weeks so I can use up my tickets. Yeah. Sweet. We're rolling. Cool. Trusted insights into the digital marketing work. Nope. 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 I'm supposed to read something else out, which is at my desk. I'll read it later.